This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Manor's children are usually very sick. They need urgent treatment. Some of them will need hospitalization and around-the-clock care. When they get sick, they tend to get a severe disease. They tend to die as well. That's Ilam Abdullahi Noor, the Ethiopia team lead for the WHO's incident management system and emergencies operations on the blockade of humanitarian aid in the Tigray region and its impact on children. Details coming up. Also, peace talks continue in South Africa between Ethiopia and the TPLF. The U.S. orders non-emergency government employees and their families out of Abuja, Nigeria, amid a security threat. And South African investigators arrest the former head of the national power provider, ESCOM, on corruption charges. All these and more on African News Tonight. But first, our top story, the Australian and Canadian embassies in Nigeria's capital, Abuja, are the latest to issue terror warnings for the city after the U.S. and British embassies on Sunday told their citizens to be on alert and avoid crowds. The Punch newspaper on Friday reported Nigerian security forces dismantled a terror cell and arrested members of the militant group Islamic State West Africa province, ISWAP. Still... Some shops have closed temporarily as a precaution, as Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. Nigeria's capital, Abuja, is gradually turning into a fortress with heavily armed soldiers and police manning strategic areas following warnings of a possible terrorist attack. Government offices have stepped up screening of staff and visitors, and a popular shopping center has closed. In the past few days, the United States, British, Canadian and Australian embassies have issued warnings to the nationals of a possible attack in Abuja. Victorson Abwensen lives in Abuja and works with a public radio station. He says the departure of foreign diplomats has heightened the fears of residents. The security threat has destabilized the city of Abuja. Many of us are now on the edge Nobody knows uh, what will happen the next minute. People are scared, especially when um, uh, those working with the UK and the US are leaving the country in droves. Uh, So that has worsened it. He said it has become difficult keeping safe in Abuja since the security alert was given. Uh, Now the safety of Abuja, that one, nobody knows how safe uh, the city is now. We are only trying to feel safe. We are only trying to play safe, uh, avoiding uh, some places to keep low profile, reducing our activities in the city centers that could be prime targets. Another Abuja resident, Joy John, described the situation as alarming, even though the Department of State Services, which runs security forces, has tried to calm fears. I don't feel safe as an Abuja resident. Yes, the DSS and the other security operatives have tried to come out with uh, various statements telling us that there's no need for us to panic uh, because they are on top of the situation. However, it would be best to reassure us 
residents of Abuja that they are really doing the work to ensure the safety of residents by making arrests. The Kuje prison in Abuja has increased its surveillance. Earlier this year, gunmen attacked the prison and freed hundreds of inmates, including Boko Haram members. A security expert in Abuja, Isiaka Mustafa, urged residents to share information with security agents. This is not the time to start inventing and reinventing unverified information about non-existing crisis. I will want Nigerians to remain calm and be vigilant. The DSS has assured Nigerians that all the necessary tools will be applied to halt any form of security challenges. The Nigeria government have subsequently assured its citizens that measures are in place to safeguard their lives and property. However, the country has battled a violent extremist insurgency known as Boko Haram in the north for more than a decade. It also is dealing with a surge in violent crime, including mass kidnappings, attacks on hospitals and on public transportation. For VOA News from Abuja, Nigeria. Kenyan prosecutors said today they will charge police officers with crimes against humanity over a deadly crackdown on post-election protests in 2017. The French news agency AFP reports the charges cover rape, murder and torture and include the case of a six-month-old baby girl. AFP reports an official at the prosecutor's office said 12 mainly senior police officers were facing charges. The police crackdown following the disputed presidential election in August 2017 saw dozens of people killed over a four-month period. The Kenyan National Commission on Human Rights documented 94 deaths as well as 201 cases of sexual violence and over 300 injuries the majority of which were attributed to security forces. Rights groups have accused Kenyan police several times of using excessive force and carrying out unlawful killings, especially in poor neighborhoods. Earlier this month, new president William Ruto disbanded a police unit accused of extrajudicial killings and vowed an overhaul of the security sector. With a lack of trust in Sudan's military junta, no civilian leader have taken up their, the mantle of the army's chiefs' promised civilian government and international mediation efforts remain stalled. UN envoy to Sudan, Volker Perthes, urged all political actors to put aside their differences and focus on the people's best interests, adding that Sudan does not have the luxury of zero-sum games and political maneuvers. Joseph Siegel, director of research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, explained to VOA senior analyst Mohamed al-Shanawi what is needed for international mediation to reach a political solution in Sudan. Well, I think a solution is possible, and international role will be critical. Sudan faces massive economic challenges between inflation debt, inability to access basic goods. And therefore, to recover, Sudan's going to need sustained economic support from international actors. And that primarily is going to mean Europe and, and the United States. But to do so, you know, international actors need to reinforce to the junta that they cannot remain in power, that you know, as long as they stay in power, the economic circumstances are going to result in a dead end for the Sudanese economy and for society. You know, they may be able to hang on 
but all around them, the economic, social security situation is going to deteriorate and it's going to make the situation increasingly untenable. So international actors have a very important role to play politically and economically for finding a mediated solution. International actors also are going to be important for helping the civilians to understand that they're going to have to compromise. And so far, you know, the civilians are rightfully very distrustful of the military who derailed the earlier transition effort and the military government continues to try to find some civilians who will serve as a front for their continued control uh, of the government. And so I think civilians are wanting to see a real commitment to change, to have a genuine transition moving forward. And as part of that, the international community needs to you know, work with these civilians to recognize there's going to be a, a need for a military in Sudan, even under a democratic civilian government. Sudan continues to have security challenges and to navigate that process and to retain the professional elements of Sudanese military that the institutions of the military are retained under civilian government, it's really going to require some external mediation to to find that middle ground. With the severe economic crisis in Sudan and the street protests on top of withdrawing or withholding international and U.S. aid, did not force the military coup leaders to hand over power to civilians. What's missing? I think the the withholding of financial assistance and debt relief is an important lever, and it needs to be backed up with a strong political messaging that change is only going to come once the military moves on. I think some in the junta believe that if they just hold on, then eventually the international community will will back off and will come through with the funding support that they need. And so I think conveying that very clearly, which hasn't always been done, is going to be important so that the military understands and makes the calculation that there really isn't a a viable political solution for them moving forward. That was Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with VOA's Mohammed Al-Shinawi. South African investigators have arrested the former head of the country's national power provider, ESCOM, on corruption charges. South African analysts say while this is a significant step forward to tackling state graft, it won't fix the country's worsening energy crisis. Linda Giftash reports from Johannesburg. Michela Coco, the former head of state power provider ESCOM, was charged Thursday with multiple counts related to corruption, fraud, and money laundering. The lawyer leading the charge for the National Prosecuting Authority, Andrea Johnson, said in a statement, quote, This arrest is about accountability and rule of law. It is imperative for the country and its people that we serve without fear, favor, or prejudice, end quote. Coco's wife, two stepdaughters, and other officials under his tenure also were charged in this complex case, which involves more than $121 million in power station construction contracts. Analysts say the charges show growing momentum in efforts to tackle widespread corruption in state institutions. Gareth Newham is the head of Justice and Violence Prevention for the Institute of Security Studies in Pretoria. I think what this sends out is that if you are in a position of power and authority 
you and you commit corruption that the precedent has been clearly set that you can and will be held accountable. So it's a very important principle that has now been established and one that was lacking for too long in South Africa. ESCOM was just one institution targeted in state graft called state capture under the nearly decade-long tenure of former President Jacob Zuma that was investigated by a judicial inquiry. Among the inquiry's recommendations was to strengthen the National Prosecuting Authority. Current President Cyril Ramaphosa has done just that by adding an independent directorate to the authority and giving it more resources as part of his anti-corruption mandate. Newham says the investigation into Coco exemplifies the potential of a strengthened public prosecutor. I think it shows that the hard work that has been undertaken within the National Prosecuting Authority since the beginning of 2019 is starting to pay off. Coco has maintained his innocence, and his arrest doesn't mean a political win for Ramaphosa. Analysts point out that other high-ranking officials implicated in the graft inquiry continue to hold offices under Ramaphosa's watch. Ina Chaos is a political scientist at the University of the Free State. He has the authority as the president of the country, as the leader of the, of the administration, to remove certain people now on all levels of government, which he's not doing. If he's waiting for the National Prosecuting Authority to do his job for him when it comes to getting rid of cadres who are implicated in corruption, then you can imagine how badly that bodes for the country. The trial set to take place in March will not fix ESCOM and the country's energy crisis. The utility is billions of dollars in debt and implementing daily blackouts due to breakdowns at power stations. Clyde Mallinson is an independent energy expert. The recovery of funds from the likes of people that have been arrested recently is is quite frankly trivial at this stage. If ESCOM had an infinite budget as we speak, and if they had an infinite amount of coal, we would still be where we sit at the moment because it's time that we've lost. While the public may welcome the prospect of accountability for corruption at ESCOM, Mallinson said they can't expect the blackouts to end anytime soon. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Johannesburg. Warring sides in Ethiopia's devastating two-year-old conflict are sitting at the negotiating table in South Africa this week for their first formal peace talks. The dialogue is led by the African Union, which failed earlier this month to bring together teams from the Ethiopian government and the rebel Tigray region in the face of fierce combat on the ground. To brief us on the latest, we have in studio Abraham Zare, team lead from the Horn of Africa service. Welcome to African News Tonight. Thank you for inviting me. So, Abraham, battlefield developments have a direct bearing on power dynamics at the negotiating table. So, Tigrayan leader Debrezion Gabriel Mikhail remains defiant, saying victory is inevitable. Tigray's commander, General Tadessa Warada, in a local media said, war will continue as they do not have other options but to fight. So, comment on these. It's quite interesting. We have negotiation on one part in, in South Africa, and we are seeing these leaders, commanders, saying we are fighting the war. Again, there are also other parts. For example, today, uh, Ethiopian ambassador to UK, Ambassador Tafari Melesdesa, tweeted, I quote, It should be noted that the country's sovereignty and territorial integrity cannot be subject to negotiation. TPLF should not be given a chance to rearm, rearm itself for another Round of destruction. This arm TPLF, unquote. So you see this kind of di- uh, dynamism. Like so, on the other hand, there's dialogue, and on the other side, as you said, General Tadesawa said yesterday, we'll fight till the end because we have no other options. Again, 
for the first time, uh, Getacho read that tweet yesterday from, uh, from, Ethiopia, from South, South Africa, Africa, disputing the economist's claim that the federal government is close to Makale, says this is false, we are, they are fighting in Quorum. This also shows that they are also kind of, you know, difficult to sit for, for peace. So who are we to believe, the Ethiopian and Eritrean forces, uh, uh, Y reports say, using artillery, bombardments and drone strikes, have captured a string of towns in Tigray, including the strategic city of Shire, and then Adwa, Aksum, and now they are maneuvering towards Makale. Uh, what are we to believe? On the ground, even yesterday, General Tandasawara, there was local media, he said, uh, Ethiopia's federal government combined with the Iran forces are kept, have captured Shire, Aksum, and Adwa, and they are fighting along Quorum uh, and other uh, fronts. So it's confirmed that they have captured those towns. And as he said, war has never stopped and it's going on all, all fronts. So still going on on the ground. And lastly, Abraham, Addis Ababa is saying it is working with humanitarian agencies to provide aid in the areas it has taken over. Can that be verified? It's difficult to verify this claim, but they also showed some photos, some pictures. Even uh, the other day, ETPS communication minister, Lagasa Tulu, said we have started uh, providing services to in the areas under our control. But it's also difficult to verify it through, through independent sources. Team lead from the Horn of Africa service, Abraham Zare, thank you for your input. Thank you for having me. Startups and small and medium-sized enterprises are changing the way Africa does business through innovation and technology. From agriculture, telecommunication, health, and so many sectors, young entrepreneurs are infusing vibrancy and energy into the African economy. Big business is watching and ready to support. Through the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its prestigious partners are providing cash awards and mentorship support to three of Africa's top innovators chosen from 17,000 candidates from 50 countries in North, Central, East, West, and Southern Africa. The Voice of America interviewed the top 10 candidates from where the finalists will be picked. Here is one of them. My name is Ryan Katai. I'm age 26. I'm from Zimbabwe, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of FarmHard. By applying to this competition that was continental, um, it was a matter of us putting us on a bigger stage where we would actually see what the external environment thinks about what we're doing, um, and that validation also proving to us exactly the potential that we actually have. For us, it really meant a lot, um, especially with the morale of the team, uh, given that you know it's, it's like a stamp to be told that what you're doing qualifies of all the thousands that applied this year. Uh, but then to me personally, it meant that we were on the right path and keeping on going on that path meant that, you know, we meant for greater things that we also envision as well. So FarmHeart is a business-to-business agri-tech startup um, that is focused on connecting farmers to retailers, restaurants, schools, and other companies. Um, what we're doing is that we're ensuring that our farmers earn more um, whilst also restaurants, retailers, and all other businesses that we're supplying to are paying less. By so doing, we're ensuring that they have an increase in household incomes and also find better economic opportunities as well through their farming businesses. 
looking at the stories that we get from the farmers that we work with um, daily, and some of them even come to us after probably three months, some even a year, um, you'd get that it's not just about the money that they're getting through, but then, you know, we've actually improved their social lives. Um, you know, now most of them can afford to even come to a rally. They can afford to access health care. And we work with more women than men. Um, so you find that it, it's not an easy industry for a woman to be operating in and having to be working with them. We've also noted that it, it has helped them a lot, especially when it comes to contributing economically to the country as well. If I'm the one who received the notification, we'll be to tell my team. Obviously, my team is going to talk about us celebrating. Obviously, we're going to do that. Um, but then I think I'm going to give tribute to my grandmother. Um, she is the one person who really motivates me to wake up every day and keep doing what I'm doing. That, that would be the steps of what we do. Um, everything we do, we do it as a team because we believe, you know, we can't get anywhere without each other. So it, they're the first people that I'll inform. Then I'll get personal with myself and be happy. That was Ryan Katia from Zimbabwe with Digital Innovation Competition. World health officials say conflict and an ongoing blockade of humanitarian aid to northern Ethiopia's embattled Tigray region are putting the lives and health of millions of people at risk. Lisa Schlatt reports from Geneva. The World Health Organization says 13.1 million people in parts of Ethiopia need health care and humanitarian assistance. More than 5.2 million are in Tigray. Since conflict between the Ethiopian government and Tigray People's Liberation Front began nearly two years ago, Tigray has been in a de facto blockade. A recent five-month truce was shattered two months ago, cutting off road and air access, as well as humanitarian aid. Ilham Abdelhai Noor is Ethiopia team lead for the WHO's Incident Management System and Emergencies Operations. She says 89% of Tigray's population is food insecure, and 29% of children under five are acutely malnourished. Malnourished children are usually very sick, they need urgent treatment. Some of them will need hospitalization and around-the-clock care. When they get sick, they tend to get a severe disease. They tend to die as well. She adds that 55% of pregnant and breastfeeding women also are acutely malnourished and risk getting sick and dying as well. Director of the Health Emergencies Interventions, Altaf Musani, notes only 9% of health facilities in Tigray are fully functional. He says routine immunization has fallen below 10% this year, putting children at high risk of vaccine-preventable diseases. He says that is particularly dangerous now when drought-affected areas of Ethiopia are reporting outbreaks of cholera and more than 6,000 cases of measles nationally have been confirmed. In Tigray and in parts surrounding, and we've learned this from COVID, diseases do not know borders. They do not respect those borders. So whether it's measles, malaria, or suspect cases of uh, anthrax, these things will move. And hence, our ability as a system at large to detect and contain them is vital. And in the case of northern Ethiopia, those systems are either stretched or non-existent. Musani says the WHO knows what diseases exist and what must be done to treat and prevent people from getting ill. However, he says the WHO has limited access to Tigray. 
He says the WHO is not able to get life-saving vaccines, fuel, and essential medicine into the area. He says those and other supplies that could make the difference between life and death cannot be brought into the area, and that, he says, is deeply worrying. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Cedric Franklin, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. <laughs> <laughs>